Welcome to PodPod. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and if this is your first time listening, what we try and do is get guests on who have unique insights into the business and the world of podcasting, whether it's from a creative, financial, or production perspective. And today's guest will hopefully give you a glimpse at a little bit of all of that and more as we delve into the world of podcast development with Creative Director of Development at Novel, Willard Foxton. Novel, in their own words, are a podcast company who make shows that go long on story, are rich in detail and heavy on sonics. And their shows include Filthy Ritual, The Girlfriends, and most recently, 28 Dates Later with Grace Campbell. So a lot to talk about with Willard and some really, really interesting tidbits. But before we get to him, I've got Reem Makari with me. Hi, Reem. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, good. I can't believe this is, I think this is the first intro that we've done as Just Us. So it's very exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, and also, I feel like you are an incredibly busy woman. Everything We've just been having a little chat and everything you've been talking about sounds really fascinating, but also so much. So out of all of those things that you're working on, let's distill it into what our listeners need to know about. Well, um, big, big news of the week, I would say, is the fact that the podcast show first lineup of speakers have been announced. Very familiar names on the list, people we've had on the podcast before, like Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala from Right Handed. So there's also BIPOC podcast creators are going to be doing a session at the podcast show. And I think this is their first year as well. Um, and we've had them on the podcast too. And then also a, b- a bunch of sessions from companies like uh, ACAST, like Bauer, Unedited. So very, very exciting. I feel like that's always such a good springboard for us for the rest of the year after the podcast show. So I know that you've been talking a lot about the equality in audio pact. So how is that going to have an effect on the podcast show this year? Yeah, so um, so the podcast show is uh, part of, has signed on to be part of the second phase of the equality in audio pact. One of the pledges of the equality in audio pact phase two is that you don't participate in panels or events that are not representative of the city cities, towns and industries they take place in. So it means that there needs to be an equal balance of speakers from diverse backgrounds, which means that the podcast show, because it's signed on to the Equality and Audio Pact, it means it has to make an effort um, to do that. And I think that's very important because I think as much as I enjoyed the podcast show last year, a big issue that people were talking about was the fact that it was not diverse enough. Um, mm-hmm. So I, the fact that they're going to be making more of an effort, it, it will be something that's a bit more beneficial. I think that would be so vital. And in the same kind of breath, I'm so sad that, to hear about Broccoli Productions. We like closed a couple of weeks ago. And when I read about that, I was just really gutted because, you know, the whole kind of point of Broccoli was supposed to be about being really inclusive and kind of bringing together people from different backgrounds and it's just it doesn't feel right that in this day and age where we should be putting such an emphasis on um, inclusion and representation that one of the companies who tried to do that has closed yeah it's, it's it just feels really sad it's it's heartbreaking and um, a bunch of other audio companies are, are closing down as well especially ones that are focused on diversity and I think it's just it's a wider issue where there needs to be a lot more investment and making it a lot more inclusive. Yeah, well, hopefully that's going to be something that the podcast show really does kind of 
put emphasis on this year because it sounds like it's really needed right now. Thank you so much, Reem, for that summary of the week. It is now time to talk to Willard Foxton, Creative Director of Development at Novel. So we're going to talk to him all about how that works in the world of podcasting, essentially how to come up with decent show ideas. So here he is, Willard Foxton, talking to me and Reem. Willard Foxton, welcome to PodPod. Thank you for joining us. We've got so much to talk to you about. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Ask away. (laughs) Um, So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in novel and what novel's ambitions and aims are in the podcasting world. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with our, um, our aims and ambitions first, which obviously is total global domination. But uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, that, that's a joke. And I'll come to the serious answer in a minute. But um, how I got involved with Novel was about five years ago. I was a very successful television producer. I worked all the time with people like HBO, Netflix, people like that. And I love podcasts, though, and I've been repeatedly asked to pitch to the BBC Sounds, because I love podcasts so much. I'd done a lot of work, I'd done work with Gimlet. I worked on Reply All. I'd worked on their Indian call centre episode. I tracked down the British end of the Indian call centre for them, which never made the final cut, but I do get credited in the episode for doing a lot of hard work. So I was, I was familiar with the industry, but I'd never really worked in it. And then during the pandemic, uh, I, did a, uh, I did a masterclass for screen skills where they got what they referred to as industry legends, like me, allegedly, <laughs> Um, to do a, do a talk on development, because I was famous for being brilliant at development. And I went in and I did a, did a class to talk to about 120 people. And one of the people was the founder of Novel. And he got in touch with me afterwards and said, look, I lo- really love the way you think about development. We've got a really big pitch coming up to iHeartRadio. And they want us to do a slate of ideas. And, you know, it'd be great to have your eyes over that slate of ideas. So I agreed to do it as a freelance because I love podcasting. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a great way to sort of, you know, put my hand in. And we pitched to iHeartRadio this slate of ideas and they said, this is not exactly how I did it, but the way I tell the story is they said, we love them so much, we'll buy all 12. So we ended up walking out of that meeting with 11 series commissions. Oh, Um, what happened to the 12th? Well, it was one of them was double sized, so it's like twelve blocks of series, and then one of them, which we'll hopefully come on talk talk about later, is twenty eight days later, which obviously is like double the size of the normal commission, so it was effectively two slots in the deal. So that kind of transformed novel overnight uh, from a sort of a small verging on medium size to a medium verging on large size podcast business. And it was also just at like a peak time in the pandemic where there was a lot of funny stuff going on in the industry where a lot of American producers had signed exclusive first look deals that weren't moving anywhere. And suddenly everyone had like an enormous need for really high quality shows. And we were suddenly in a position where not only were we able to fulfill that need, but also there was a huge buzz around us as like, wow, these guys like got this huge deal from iHeartRadio. They must be great. So instantly we were previously, I think it would have taken a huge amount of time to kind of get in the door at at Wondery, to get in the door at Spotify, to get in the door at Gimler, all those places. And we were able to just capitalize on that really, really well. And by the end of that year, I think we had... 
certainly the year after I think we, we, we made 30 shows the following year it became like a really really big business very very fast and obviously having having delivered that totally ludicrous iHeart meeting immediately the first thing they said to me was would you like to come on full time and be head of development so I was head of development for a long time and then I was promoted to being creative director a couple of years ago but yeah that's how I got involved with novel and the podcast industry as a whole in terms of our ambition the thing we always say is like we are in podcasting for the long haul. There's a lot of people who are in podcasting because they're really excited about an exit or they're, you know, they think they're going to get loads of money, but we're very much in it because we want to keep making the kind of, we want to make every kind of podcast, right? Like weirdly, like we, we have a huge reputation in the kind of the, the very big scale narrative podcast space. But we also, we make loads of comedy and, and award-winning comedy as well. So we've done, you know, sort of multiple award-winning series for Audible in comedy. But, our, our, you know, the, the key reason we're in it is we love the audio medium. Mm. We love audio storytelling. And, you know, we want to be here, you know, I, I want to be like, you know, retiring in 40 years time <laughs> at Still at Novel. Yeah. And, you know, like and in 100 years, there being a sort of established 2019 plaque on the building. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, our, our ambition is basically doing whatever it takes to keep narrative storytelling in audio going for that period. Can you tell us a bit about your process behind generating ideas and pitches for novel? I think there's a lot of people in the industry, and this goes for the TV industry as well, a lot of people in the creative industries who just think creativity is like a thing that just happens, that sort of just strikes like lightning. And that is not the attitude that people like mechanical engineers and designers take to this kind of thing. So... The, the whole reason why development departments exist in television and increasingly in podcasts, like, you know, I, I think Novel had the first development department in podcasting because they hired me and I said, this is the way you do it. There's a lot of t there's a lot of companies I speak to where the model is still they expect producers as well as doing their day job of coming up with making amazing shows their job is also in the side on the side to be coming up with great ideas on the side. And the thing is, those those are not completely different skills but the truth is you just it's very hard coming up with really good ideas and pitching those really good ideas and it's really hard making good shows and it's there's a benefit to separating those two jobs and saying these are these are similar and linked but slightly different skill sets and letting a team focus on just coming up with great ideas is a really great thing to do um, so there's a benefit in just having a team that just comes up with ideas and doesn't make things all the time that's not to say that we're all you know sort of slimy sharp suited uh, business people who are out just sell sell selling with <laughs> finger guns all day that's not the way it works it's, it's got to be an amazing audio experience it's got to have a really great reason because one of the classic questions people ask is like why now why in audio and you have to be able to kind of really understand and really love the medium in order to kind of compellingly answer those questions and the way i think about ideas this is like a six-stage process it's like a scientific process and it comes from the stanford design school and it's the way people like dyson teach product design okay uh -huh. and so the first stage is you empathize and what empathize means in a design context is you think about a user need in the market you're like i love true crime podcasts <laughs> and i wish i could hear more but then, like, what sets mine apart? Not only what does the audience want, but what do I want? Mm -hmm. and, and you have to kind of marry those two things together. So if you want to make a great true crime podcast, it's not a matter of just going out and finding the first true crime that you think you can get a, a reporter close to. It's about saying to yourself, 
who is going to buy this? Mm. Who is going to listen to this? And those are two different questions, right? And a lot of the thinking at that, that point is thinking about what audience are we making, right? So you're making an amazing show that will be a beautiful work of art and storytelling. But what that is doing is it is building an audience and that audience is the thing that people are selling and they're selling it to advertisers, right? So the, it's not just about the biggest audience you can get. It's about, you know, different demographics want different things. I think once you've done that sort of empathize, there's always like a million, billion, zillion different really clever ideas that you've got. I mean, I think my favorite show of last year was Classy by Jonathan Medjivar, which was just a very stylish man, American man talking about class and how it impacted his life <laughs> over 10 episodes, which was, I thought was brilliant. Um, and yeah, like the, the key thing is there's lots of different places you could place your your energy. Mm -hmm. So I think the next thing you have to do after you've empathized and you've thought about where all the gaps in the market are is you have to define. That's the stage two is define. You have to pick one of those areas, one of those ideas, and you have to focus in on like, I'm going to make a true crime podcast. And it's going to be different from every other true crime podcast mm -hmm. because it's going to appeal to older women or it's going to appeal to men or it's going to appeal to my mum. Right. Like whoever that person is or whoever where that empathy has led you, you have to pick one idea and you have to define that's the need we're going to meet. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very sure about where that's going. And then after that, you have to do the bit that I think everybody else kind of starts from, which is you ideate. You start thinking about what is the specific idea, but what the specific idea is, it isn't just what is the story I'm telling? It's how am I going to tell that story? It's like the, the approach you take is in some ways more important than the story itself. So for example, with The Girlfriends, which was a massive hit we had last year, the story is an amazing story. It's kind of almost like a Sex and the City episode to start yeah. with, where these four amazing, funky career women in Las Vegas in the 90s, Big hair, big shoulder pads, all go out for brunch and they start talking about men, yeah. right? Okay, it's a great start to mm -hmm. anything. And then over that brunch, they basically realise that one of them's really excited about a new man, but one of the others has dated him already. And they pretty much, this is a bit of a reduction of the sort of, you know, the complication of the story, but they re realise that this man is not just a shit, but also a potential murderer. Yeah. And then they decide to try to figure out whether he has or hasn't done the murder. That story had been told in different ways before. But the key thing that we zeroed in on is the opening is good because it's an experience almost every woman can empathise with, mm -hmm. like going out with your friends, having a drink, being excited about a man, and then them raising the red flags you've ignored. <laughs> right? And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Mostly they're wrong. Mostly he's not a murderer. It must be said, mostly. <laughs> Most mostly. of the time, yeah. Um, and the thing about it was, was speaking to the women, they were such kind of incredible, authentic women who just didn't, who, who you know, we didn't want to mediate that through, like, a host. Mm. We were like, no, they should tell the story. So having the decision where we're like, no, the victims who are also the detectives should tell the story and that story should be rooted in their own experience of how his cruelty to them made them doubt themselves but mm. then proving that they were right their intuition was right you know kind of restored their own faith in themselves it's it completely changed the way because you could tell that story you could tell that story in a load of different ways but that approach was incredibly important and that was there from that ideation stage where we were like this is the story we're going to tell and this is how we're going to tell it. And that how was part of that ideation. Because I think like 
I really love off-menu, and I think that's one of the most cleverly ideated formats in the sense that what they've done with it is they've gone... It can't just be James having a chat about food. Uh He's got to have a co-host. Who's that co-host going to be? What's their relationship? And it's got those segments that you just move through that guarantee good answers every single episode. And that also can be part of ideation. Um, So that's having the idea. And then the next stage is... I mean, they all sound very similar, but the next stage is called originating. And what originating is, it's the first time you really put your idea down on paper. You write it out and you try to kind of, and often the ideas that are on paper are just rubbish. And you realise at that stage, that sort of prototyping stage of like, oh, I thought this sounded so good in my head. (laughs) And now I've written it down. It's rubbish. That is an important stage. (laughs) It is very important, yeah. So you put it down on paper and you go like, this is what I think the show will look like. And it's really important that you don't just verbally describe it. write it down because that enables you to circulate it really widely within a group of people who have opinions and this is where it comes down to that sort of like maker versus ideator kind of thing whereby when we have an idea we don't just sort of immediately run to a commissioner and go I've got this great idea about serial killers we sort of put it around all the sort of amazing incredibly talented people we work with and you know Anna Sinfield, who's the producer on The Girlfriends, like she asks me better commission questions than any commissioner ever does. But because I've uh, we've asked those questions in that development phase, in that kind of originating phase, we've created that prototype, we've stress tested it, then that means we're sort of enormously equipped to both make a better show, but answer loads of questions about it. And sometimes we do get to a point where we're like, you know, this isn't going to work. And you do have to leave even ideas that you really love. Mm. You just have to listen to your colleagues when they say, look, this is too hard to make. We will put it, put it to one side and, and maybe come back later. Then you do the, the next stage, which is test. And that's where you really put it out to the market. So you put it out into commissioners. You email them and you say, I've got this amazing idea. What do you think? And frequently it's not right for them. And it's not because there's anything inherently wrong with the idea. It's because, for example, they've already commissioned something on, you know, Nazi war criminals turning up in, you know, uh, rural Georgia. Like they've got, they've got the other Nazi war criminal. Uh-huh. They've got the same, they've heard the same story before and said no to uh-huh. it. Or like they have a slate, it's full, they've spent all their money that year. Like sometimes when things kind of bounce off people, they don't bounce off them because they're wrong. They bounce off them because there's like extrinsic reasons. But sometimes they bounce off people because they're, there's something wrong with them that you hadn't realised in that process. And that's the point where you go, oh, okay, right, we've tested it and like they didn't so there's a story we're working on at the moment where we really like the story but it did need a host it absolutely did need a host for it we didn't have a host attached in the first instance and so we went away and we sat down and went right before we pitch it again we're going to attach a really amazing host who gives people the confidence that this will be delivered sensitively and emotionally in a really good way so we were able to attach a really amazing host to it because she loved the material and was confident she could deliver on it. And then we took that show back out after the test phase and went, how about it with this lady on it? And they went, instantly people went, amazing, we'll buy it. So that's what the the test phase is, you pitch it. And sometimes the test phase just works. You just go, we pitch it, Mm -hmm. they buy it, done. Um, But then the next phase, the bit where it doesn't work is called ideating. And that's the last phase where, no, not ideating, iterating. I was like, we've we've definitely had ideating. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, no. Iterating is where you either take the thing back if it hasn't succeeded and you go, why hasn't it succeeded? Is there a way we can make it succeed? When you say take it back, is that after it's gone out to audiences or...? No, 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 no. That's a a whole other other stage of iterating. I mean, once it's gone to the commissioner, like if it's not selling, it goes out. But then there is that stage of like iterating in the literal sense where things go out, they get made and you take your learnings from... It's really one thing I think not enough people do is they don't learn enough from success. Nobody analyzes success well. Like a failure gets relentlessly analyzed. Like, why didn't it work? Why didn't anyone listen to it? What mistakes did we make? But a, but a success is actually in some ways more important to analyze. You, you analyze like, what could we have done better on this success? But also, and that feeds into the sort of process at the top, but it also, there's a whole element of this of, like, say, for example, we did a show called Harsh Reality a couple of years ago. It was a really, really big hit for Wondery. It was all about the most unethical reality show ever made. Nobody in the industry knew that reality shows were a great kind of territory. This was before things like Unreal came out. And we sort of went, my God, this is such a great untapped territory. What other reality shows are there out there? And we went out and basically, I've, I've probably interviewed everybody who made a reality television show <laughs> in between like about 2003 and 2012 um, to try and find another story that was as good as that one. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the six-stage novel process. And sometimes when I tell people that process, they go, wow, that seems very in-depth, <laughs> like, you know, or like that seems like a lot of work to get away. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But, you know, we, we have the results in terms yeah. of being able to sort of demonstrate kind of commissions all around the globe for you know like literally millions and millions of pounds worth of uh, podcast hits all around the globe so you've you've highlighted the importance of talking to your colleagues about the idea and getting their feedback and and understanding what's wrong and what's not um there was a talk that you've done as well before at podcast day 24 where you talked about novel's approach to its creative development um, and you highlighted the importance of having diversity in the team as well. Why is it so important to have that diversity in the team? Well, I just think like it's a lesson I learned at Panorama years ago. I used to, I used to do, make dispatches and panoramas and we, we had the Windrush scandal in front of us before it was in the papers and the commissioner passed on it because... Basically, they were their, their answer was at the time they were full on immigration was the answer, and we didn't realise how important it was because we were an all white team and we had no idea that the hostile environment process was making basically pretty much anyone who was non-white provide identity documents to like their landlords, and so inevitably anyone who's like who had like a black or Asian grandma would have known that and we would have been able to reveal that maybe 18 months to two years earlier than it was otherwise revealed and we would have saved a lot of people a lot of heartbreak the story i often tell in that sort of diversity of thought thing is the um harsh reality the idea of harsh reality actually came from like a young trans producer that we had and she said this was like a really formative experience for me i think it was a really formative experience for lots of other trans people it's the first time i'd ever seen a, a trans person represented on screen as someone who was like sexually desirable um and that was such a really interesting insight. I would never have come to that story had that person on the team not had that like specific identity and a specific thing that mattered to them. And the truth is, if something matters a lot to somebody, um, then it probably matters a lot to a lot of people. It's like having more antennas to receive signals. 
And how does that trickle down to like the, the pitching process? Because on the novel website, you can submit a form to pitch ideas for audio shows. Because, you know, I guess a pitch isn't just about like a brilliant gem of an idea. It's also about how you put that idea across. But I guess if you don't have experience in that world, it might be harder. The thing about it is, is, is if somebody pitches to us through the pitch form on the website, essentially what they're saying is, I can't tell this story myself, Mm. but I trust you guys enough as audio storytellers that you can tell me how to tell this story properly, right? And that is the promise of that pitch email. It's like, if you have a brilliant germ of of an idea and you have a brilliant podcast, but you don't have like enormous financial backing, it's a lot easier to come to us than it is to go to like Spotify Mm -hmm. or Wondery, right? So basically... I would encourage people to pitch. I think it's great. We've had some fantastic ideas come in. Particularly, we get really great ideas from established journalists who are like, I think this is an amazing podcast. Do you think it's an amazing podcast too? And then and then you basically, you kind of, you come into that process kind of midway down where you're like, okay, cool. Is this a great idea? If it's not a great idea, we'll, we'll tell you pretty straight up. It won't work for these reasons. So I had a really fantastic pitch come in from a journalist recently, a very experienced audio journalist for Radio 4. And this specific pitch was a really great story. But the problem with it was, was a huge amount of the characters were dead. Right. And that's a that's a that's a it's a real problem getting them to talk. Obviously, ghost story. By wondering, successfully <laughs> solves that problem. Um, but the, the, the key thing is, like, I, I sort of went back to her and said, look, this is an amazing story. It's really challenging to tell because so many of the characters are dead. If you could find a way into that story through someone who isn't dead, mm. like, it's all about doctors in San Francisco in the 70s. And I was like, is there a receptionist? Right, is there, okay. like, a nurse who could be, who could put the listener in the room? And so what we'll do is, if it's just not a good idea, we'll tell you, look, we, we just don't think this is commercial. If it is a good idea, but there's some holes in it, we'll come bat it back to you and go, effectively kind of like free consultation, like, this is this is good, but, and it, but, but it has these problems and we can't look at it until these problems are mm-hmm. solved. But then once we get towards a situation where things are like, this is a really workable idea, we'll bring that person in, we'll sign an agreement that signs over rights and make sure that they get paid for their efforts and so on and so forth. And then we'll bring them into that development process. And do they retain their IP if their submission is successful? If, they, if it gets made, they retain some, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so basically what we usually do is we split 50-50 with the person who brings us the IP and then that is further diluted if a broadcaster pays for it, right? So obviously broadcasters want a piece of the IP and especially speaking as novel, IP is such a huge part of our business. So, you know, we have an LA office, not just because it's nice to have Americans to talk to, Although. which is lovely, <laughs> they are very charming. Um, but, you know, we have the LA office so they can meet movie studios all the time time and so for example we did a huge deal with a24 selling them the girlfriends as a big returnable series that's got michael Showalter attached it's got wow. lots of other he's like a huge deal in terms of tv series yeah. making it's got lots of other amazing creative it's got a writer attached is it is it going to be a drama or a documentary series it's going to be a drama. It's, it's actually very hard, I will say. It's actually extremely hard to make a documentary out of something that makes a really good podcast most of the time. Right. So obviously as a former documentary filmmaker, one of the real challenges is a lot of things that are really good to tell as podcasts don't have any tape. Like where's the visual yeah. of the girlfriends, yeah. right? 
you've nobody was filming themselves mm-hmm. in like 1990s Las Vegas. It's a lot of drama reconstruction, and I th- always think drama reconstruction looks a bit a bit, a bit naff. Yeah. Yeah, it always looks a bit enough. And, and and there are stories that we've chased after that have been bought out as big docs by Netflix. So, for example, American Nightmare, we we went after that really hard, and we would have told it way better. But like, <laughs> we we couldn't compete on we couldn't compete on the money that they were offering at the time. But at the back end, when doc filmmakers come to us and say, "Can we license that podcast?" We almost always say no. And the reason why we say no to documentary filmmakers is partly we think it will make a rubbish doc, yeah. but also the scripted rights are worth like exponentially more than the documentary rights, like literally like 20 times what you'll get paid for a documentary, you'll get paid for a scripted series. That's why we've got an LA office to try and get us those really great deals. On 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 the topic of adaptations, other than Girlfriends, you've also had um, Filthy Ritual recently get picked up uh, with a global and it's going to be adapted into a TV scripted drama, right? Uh, That's correct. So uh, I wanted to, to know about your... You, do you sometimes specifically look for ideas or create ideas that have the potential to be adapted into things like TV or movies? So we've we've actually had seven. We can't talk about all of them in detail, but we've actually had seven shows picked up out of our slate for adaptation into TV. So, uh, so that is, you know, it's obviously a big focus for us is getting those things away as adaptations, but... I think there's a lot of people that make the mistake of going, I'm going out to look for a story that I think will make a good drama and I'm going to make the podcast first so I can sell it, right? That almost never leads to a good podcast is the problem there. And it's very, very hard to go to like to go to Hollywood and say, I've got this rubbish podcast that nobody listened to and everybody who did listen to left a one-star review please make it as a movie. So we don't approach things from the position of I'm going looking for something that's a movie. The way we approach things is we go looking for great audio stories. And then part of our process is we go, does this have adaptation potential, right? And that is not a question that we would necessarily ask ourselves. It is a question that every broadcaster asks us. Right, because broadcast. If there's no adaptation potential, mostly a broadcaster will not fund the podcast. You're kidding. That's really sad. No, it's true. It's absolutely unfortunately, it is absolutely true. Almost every. I mean, it might just be our specific experience because that's our kind of sweet spot. And also, we're in the narrative game, which is like the only way to. You know, I'm not saying you can't make money from ads and subscriptions and sponsorships around narrative shows. The Sony have certainly been leading the way in that space with things like The Binge. But, you know, a big part of the return on investment is inevitably going to be the scripted adaptation. So I think it's a legitimate question to ask, to say, is that what do you think the adaptation potential here is? And there's definitely shows that we go at, we look at and we go, oh, you know, there is a scripted here. Fine. We're just going to make it anyway because we love it. But it's definitely a question that every single commissioner asks us without fail. Can we talk about the, uh, the 28 Dates Later? Because this is like an incredibly personal project to you. Um, and now it's been like gender flipped and uh, there is like an embarrassment of riches when it comes to dating options and websites and apps compared to maybe when you were writing about it when was it 11 years ago so i was writing about in 2013 so just to give everyone the listeners a little bit of backstory so um 
now 10 years ago, I went on a date with a lady. Cut along, you can read it on the blog, but cut a long story short, essentially, it ended with me at A&E because she bit my finger through to the bone in what she thought was a very sexy act, which was not a very sexy act, let's say. Um, It's very funny, honestly. It it, it sounds terrible, but it was actually, you know, I sort of was able to write it up in a very funny way. Anyway, so I did a blog for the New Statesman at the time where I went on 28 dates on 28 different dating sites looking for love. I was a single man at the time. And around date 25, I met uh, my lovely wife. So I actually ended up marrying someone who I met through the blog. It's been optioned for TV multiple times, but never made. So we happened to be in this meeting with iHeart. We got to the end of the meeting and they said, my favourite question to ask a commissioner, and this is a key question to ask any commissioner is, do you have any gaps? Do you have any holes which we could instantly fill, right? Because there's always something's gone catastrophically wrong recently in any creative business and there's always a hole where they're like do you have a gangster thing filthy ritual actually came about from um the commissioner at global phoning up phoning me up and saying we've had a show collapse do you have a supernatural themed crime story with no bodies in it that you can get me in seven days oh, wow. and i was like done right like found it and, and and got it away um but I asked, is there a gap? And they said, well, actually, we think romance and dating is going to be big. Do you have a great returnable romance and dating show? And I said, do I? (laughs) Um, I said earlier, I wasn't, you know, not my whole team is full of like finger guns shooting. (laughs) Yeah, you literally uh, just finger gunned us. (laughs) But I did just finger gun you. Like, you know, is that part of the pitching process? Is that stage seven finger guns? (laughs) Maybe. So I pitched them and they were like, we love it. There is actually a taster where it was just me like redoing the experience. But we decided <laughs> that the problem with it was, was the date, as you rightly point out, the dating market has fundamentally changed since I do mm-hmm. it. And it has not got bigger. It's actually got smaller. So when I did it, there were like 50,000 working dating websites. There was ever like this oh, huge yeah. plethora. There was like, so I went on a date on sea captain dating. I what? went on a date with a lady who was like a, a naval officer. Oh my goodness, on, was it was Captain sea Sandy captain. I went on, from Below Deck? That would no, have been very cool. No, sadly not, no, <laughs> yeah. no. Um, so I went, I went on a, she was a naval officer, like, you know, sort of a proper kind of salute the flag type. Then I, went on a, I went on a website called Muddy Matches, which is an all father's dating website oh, turns out in london great way to meet girls called tomorrow where fashion <laughs> is um then like i went on i went on a date dating site called missionary dating where p you as a non-religious person go on a date with a religious person and they try to convert no. you on the date so we went on all these wild dating sites but what we found when we did it with grace was basically those are all completely dead now and everyone is on like three apps Right. So the, the, what's happened is that the market is actually like consolidated in a completely different way to the way it was. And I think that was like part of the reason why we couldn't just have my, you know, my the pilot, which is really good if I do say something. Like that. <laughs> part of the reason why we couldn't just have the pilot go out was because... You know, it just didn't reflect modern dating. It reflected dating in 2013. And what we really wanted was a format that kind of appealed to people under 30 and re- reflected the kind of the way we date now. But one of the things that's really exciting about 28 Dates Later is you said, oh, it's gender flipped now. But the truth is it can play in any geography and it can play with any identity. Mm. So for the next series, uh, you know, gay man in L.A., the series after that could be a single mum 
who is, you know, of Korean origin in Florida. And their experience of dating will be still, you know, emotionally compelling and interesting and fascinating mm. and funny because they're always going to be a comedian, right? Crucial. Well, this is this right? is what I was going to ask you. Are they going to be always be a name? Because obviously Grace Campbell is a name in her own right. She's also, as it's dropped in the first episode, Alistair Campbell's daughter. Like, so is that going to be a thing going forward that they have to have some sort of profile? So I don't think so. I don't think, I'm, never say never yeah. is, is the simple truth there. Like the, the truth is when we got to that test phase and the sort of ideation bit of can we do this as a format rather than as like a kind of a retrospective, we test bit was we got in my old mate, John Rowlands, who was the creator of Don't Tell the Bride. Oh, yeah. And I expect him to come in and say, this is shit, Willard, what are you thinking about? And he came in and he was like, this is the perfect format. Like I love oh. it. And he literally on the spot said, I will show run the TV version, right? Which is pretty flattering. I won't, I won't lie. Because the key thing that we were worried about is what if the person isn't interesting on the dates or isn't mm. funny on the dates mm. or isn't funny in the chat with their two friends, right? And he said, and his, his, his description of the, the, the perfect comedian for this, which I hope, I hope Grace will take in the spirit it's intended, is he was like, you've got to get people who are just about to be on Taskmaster, right? Okay. <laughs> you've got to get people who are like, they're still at the stage where they're like gigging in pubs, mm. but they're just on the edge of escaping yeah. to get into the bright lights of TV. Uh, yeah, you're not looking um, at me, right? Reem, I think you would be Oh, absolutely. Anyone, anyone, anyone who's listening. <laughs> Definitely you, Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I, I wanted to touch on the girlfriends as well a bit because I know you already mentioned how it became such a huge hit. So we have um, we have like a feature on our website where we where we ask people to recommend their favorite podcast. And I remember when the girlfriends went out. I think I got the girlfriends recommended to me like three, four different times. So it's a huge, <laughs> huge hit. Did you expect it to do so well, or was it? shocking that it became so successful i mean there's a handful of shows every year that i say this is going to be the biggest show in the world and i haven't been wrong yet <laughs> so like um and i so basically yeah so i i knew as soon as i heard tape of carol i knew mm-hmm. it was going to be like unique and special and it's interesting because across the business sometimes we have shows that you like or shows that you don't like that are just not to your taste and I think, like, you know, I'm, I'm renowned in the business for having, like, the most kind of, like, earthy Channel 5 vibe. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the person that likes the populist stuff. Um, but, yeah, so Harsh Reality, I was sure, was going to be massive. And Girlfriend, I was sure, was going to be... I knew it was going to be good. Everything, I mean, you know, everything we make is good, right? But I knew it was going to be good from the pitch. But I didn't know it was going to be brilliant until I heard Carol. Right, that was the point where I was like, this is going to be world-conquering, amazing stuff. Like, recently we've had um, Mr Bates versus the post office on ITV, and I think everyone couldn't really get over the fact that we... These facts have been floating around for a really long time, but it wasn't until the TV show that actual change happened because people reacted en masse. And obviously we've seen that happen in the US with Serial, where podcasts did actually have the power to change opinion. Do you think that we are like um, a nation of podcast listeners in as much as we could change something in the same way over here. Well, it's funny, and this you you basically sort of hit on something that I've obviously I'm re- in real danger of ranting and saying something mad here. <laughs> Great, but basically, like yeah, okay. So basically, like 
I love stories like Mr. Bates. I love small British stories that say something bigger mm-hmm. about everything else, right? And my I, my ideal story is it is low stakes high drama Mm -hmm. right so in the post office scandal like a lot of people's lives are being ruined but like there's no murders right like people people are losing money and they are going to prison for short amounts of time Uh, and one of the challenges of getting that on tv consistently was people would go well it's already been in computer weekly and nobody did anything about it so it was actually incredibly difficult i think for little gem fantastic work by little gem to get that made Mm -hmm. And I think I'm sure it was incredibly hard to make, but you would think in the post Mr. Bates world and in our own show, Stolen Hearts, right? So Stolen Hearts, big wondery show, world number one, US number one. Um, and I was like, obviously it is a story about a woman in Wales who is a cop who falls in love with a man she meets on online dating secret and spoiler for the show. He turns out to be Britain's most successful bank robber. And that's what he's lying about. <laughs> Right? So basically, huge, huge hit. Huge hit. All that's at stake is basically, obviously he goes to jail in episode one when she finds out. But the key thing is, all that's at stake is her police career. It becomes Uh very line of duty Uh where like they think she was the inside woman and she's obviously innocent and is fighting to clear her name. Right? And I was like, brilliant. We've proven that these small British shows can be titanic in the USA. And then I went around British commission, British commissions, who, by the way, had all said no to it because it was too Welsh. Oh, gosh. Right? It's Welsh. It's Welsh. Oh, why is anyone going to care? Oh, There's no God. stakes. Yada, yada, yada. All that bullshit. Anyway, so basically then I go back round the fucking tour after swearing because I'm so yeah. incensed about this. But I go back round with a tour of all of these stories, which, again, low stakes, high drama, small British location. You know, people don't appreciate how iconic like little villages are like everyone in America loves Midsummer Murders, right? Like people, American people feel like they know what a small British village feels yeah. like more than they know what like rural Louisiana feels right. like, right? Like it's really that stark. And um, yeah, I went back around to the tour of the British commissioners. Everyone's like, oh, well, you know, this is a bit small, isn't it? This is too small for podcast. Like, you know, and, and I just, I, I, I do talk to him. I mean, you can see I'm extremely bald. I'm like Joe Rogan bald. Yeah. Um, but basically, like, you know, I'm as frustrated as I am bald by the, by the <laughs> willingness so. of commissioners to back small British stories. Yeah. Like, it's so infuriating. Yeah. There's a whole tranche of British commissioners who are desperate for a heartbreaking story about a postman from Mogadishu, but they're not, they're not keen for a postman from Powys, right? And, uh, I, you know, it really, really drives me mad. It really does. But um, suffice to say, yeah, small... I love, personally, small stories that say something about a bigger world that we can all appreciate. But I just don't know if the... I just don't know if the excitement for impact is really there with commissioners. I mean, things where... Things where you're looking for change, where things are not set in stone, are very expensive to make. Investigations are very expensive to make. They're much more expensive to make than something where you already know the facts of the story. And it's very hard to pitch them as well, because when you because one of the inevitable questions that Serial never had to deal with is, what's the end, right? right <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and there is no surer way than to get like removed from the Wondery offices by security, then pitch them a podcast that's like, and they go, what's the end? And you go, well, it, it, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's up in the air, right? No, get out. It has to have an ending so we can build towards it. And we can seed things in episode T34 to pay off 
yeah. in the finale. Just just for just for record, the wondery the, the wondery people are lovely and will not actually remove you from the building <laughs> if you piss them a podcast without an ending. That's a metaphor in case anybody from wondering is listening. Wondery is listening, but yeah, I mean the point is true. Like nobody wants a podcast without with an open ending. Mm. So I feel like. Things like post office trial couldn't happen apart from the point where there was a trial mm. to report mm-hmm. on. I'd love people to take more risks. Mm-hmm. I love taking risks. I always pitch people mad shit. Like I'm always like commissioners occasionally make an effort, make the error of saying to me, Will, I don't want you to pitch the maddest story you've ever heard. And I'm like, wow. And then does it get made, the maddest story? Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> occasionally it does get made. Occasionally, <laughs> occasionally it does. Yeah. Willard, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. I feel like I, I really want to take your step-by-step guide and now apply it. Um, hopefully our listeners are going to find that really useful. So thank you for all of your tips and sharing all of those brilliant anecdotes. A real pleasure. I'm always happy to come back again. If you need more six-point guides Absolutely to anything, will. dating, <laughs> take you up on it. podcasts. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So that was Willard Foxton. I feel like I got so much information there. I need to already go back and listen again to that interview and make notes because I think there was some incredibly useful stuff. If if this sort of narrative podcasting with a name to going into visual adaptation is something you're interested in. Reem, what were your initial thoughts about all of the IP stuff? Because I know we talked to Blanchard House about this last year or the year before. Um, so it was kind of interesting hearing it come up in like another context. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I so I'm currently working on a feature about protecting your IP as a podcaster. So it was very interesting that it came up. And I think it's something that um, everyone's concerned with at the moment because you see so many podcasts now being turned into adaptations and and everyone's thinking Mm -hmm. about where does their control of their IP go Um, and one thing that he mentioned about IP was when you pitch on the website so you're able to pitch ideas to novel and then get it made if it gets approved and gets taken in house but uh, the fact that they would basically give free consultation if your idea works or not and give you corrections and then if they do decide to take it in-house then you're handing over control but you're still having an opportunity to have your podcast be made so at that point you have Mm. to kind of think about um, is your priority to keep control over your entire IP or is your priority to get help from someone else and let them take control and let them um, have the funding because it's not, I think especially with how competitive the industry is and how much harder it is to create things independently, it's a lot harder to just start things completely on your own so sometimes even if it means letting go of your ip or letting go of some control over your ip but you're still getting the project made it's something worth considering it's not going to be it shouldn't be something that's going to be like a complete deal breaker for you i get it's kind of very dragon's den isn't it that you're giving up a certain amount of the business for a certain amount of the money and i you know i think if you are 
if you're a podcaster with an aim of pushing out as many ideas as possible then this is fine this is great because you're handing over something that you just wouldn't be able to handle the day-to-day business of it all um i think all of that is a really good thing especially if you're asking the right people and they can give you help in the right places obviously they're going to make money off it otherwise why would they do it but it's just about yes kind of doing your research i think is the main thing but also coming at it from like Uh, a critic perspective thinking about you know we've had some fantastic um films and shows and some not so fantastic films and shows that have come from podcasts if you think about this american life um and the story they did which then turned into lulu wong's the farewell with aquafina i think that's a really interesting example of an early um kind of podcast which was this long form narrative story told really well by a journalist and filmmaker which then got developed into a really successful movie um i think when it works it can work so well but there is a danger of kind of emphasizing the wrong thing and stifling creativity if you are trying to get a podcast if you're only trying to make a podcast with a view to getting it made into a tv show or a film i think that's where the danger is personally and because it feels like you might have to compromise the podcast aspect for it to become a decent tv show or you might want to hold some stuff back because you think it will look so good on screen so i wonder where that line will I think it's normal to think of when you're creating a podcast that there should be potential for it to be adapted because that's what a lot of um, companies are looking for. Like Willard pointed out is that they will ask the question about can it be adapted into a TV or film? Um, And Mm. that's normal, but you can't go into creating a podcast with the intention to just turn it into TV or film, you need to first prioritize creating quality audio um, and something that works as a podcast with the potential of being adapted rather than just thinking of the adaptation first, which is why I think like with novel, the girlfriends and filthy ritual works so well because they really they they really focus their attention on making the podcast quality super high um, and something mm. that's engaging and that the format of the adaptation is going to be different. So I think the with The Girlfriends and Filthy Ritual, they're both true crime podcasts and the adaptations are going to be scripted dramas. Um, mm. So it's something that's still a bit different, but but on the same idea. But it's it should always be audio as the priority and then the adaptations yeah as long as it doesn't kind of like start to draw in all these frustrated tv and film writers who think that that making the podcast is the easy way in first that's i think you know you don't want to suddenly then flood the market with those kinds of producers um which would then kind of quieten the voices of people who are just kind of really keen to work in audio um Willard has given us so much to talk about, so much to think about, really useful stuff. Thank you so much to Willard Foxton, who has given us a lot to think about and a lot to talk about. And of course, to Reen Makari for joining me as ever. You can find us all over socials at podpodofficial. Um, You can read Reem's articles on podpod.com, including the one about IP, which will be out in the near future. Keep an eye on that. Um, also go back and listen to our previous catalogues we've got so many more interviews in there about all of the things that we've just discussed um, which will hopefully be really useful if this is a route that you want to go down the podcast is produced by ollie peart for haymarket business media and i'm your host rihanna Dillon, and i'll see you next week bye